So thank you for coming to worship the Lord Jesus with us this morning. I see some guests with us, and I thank you for coming. Thank you for joining us. We're glad to have you with us today. Um, we've been preaching through Joshua, and um, normally we would read the passage, but we're taking big chunks of Scripture um, uh, as there's so many details that... Uh, but within those details, there are some important uh, things that we can grab and lessons we can pull out of them. So that's what we're doing today. We're looking at Joshua chapters 20 through 22 and just taking some of the key lessons out of those passages. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I want to lift up uh, our sister Bobby to you. She is really hurting and our brother Mario, Pastor Mario, and Sophia. Lord, all these, these dear people need your touch. And we know that you are the great physician and that you care about each of them. So Lord, we pray you would be merciful to them and, and touch and heal them, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for our time together in your word this morning. Thank you for the lessons that it brings us. Thank you how it renews our mind. And so, Lord, as we consider your word this morning, let it do its work in us. Thank you, Lord, that you're a gentle surgeon and the word is your scalpel. And so, Lord, um, we just come before you asking you to do your work in us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So today, um, in that, uh, those passages from Joshua 20 to 22, we have some wonderful lessons. We're skipping 16 to 19 because it's just basically, it, it's telling uh, each tribe the boundaries. And so we have all these place names that many of which we, we don't know where they are anymore. So rather than to read all those details, we're skipping ahead to some of the lessons towards the end of Joshua. After Easter, um, later on in April, we have about one or two more lessons in Joshua, and then we'll be going on to Galatians. But there's several noteworthy passages in even within those boundaries and descriptions um, that we're gonna to try to pull out today and talk about. One passage presents an interesting account of the tribe of Manasseh. Now, half the tribe of Manasseh was on the east side of the Jordan and half on the west. And the tribe that was on the west was complaining about their, the distribution of land that they got because they said, we're so numerous, our tribe's so big and there are enemies in this land, and it's wooded, and it's not a lot of farmland. So they went to, to Moses and complained about, I mean, I'm sorry, Joshua, and complained about uh, the lot that God had given them. Remember, they got the property by casting lots. So it, was, it wasn't Joshua's decision. It was God's decision. So I think it's fascinating the way that Joshua responded to them. He said, well, you say you've got a lot of people then get busy and conquer, finish conquering those that are in the land and uh, clear the forest. In other words, God gave you this assignment, so, so get to work and, and do your job. Don't complain. Thank God for the land he's given you. And remember, it's from God. It was God's choice. 
And I think we can learn from this that God assigns us our lot in life. We talked about this a little bit this morning in our Bible, this morning's Bible study. We always want something a little different because we think something that's a little different will be a little better. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence than, than the side we're on. Um, we end up complaining to God that, well, I really wanted this or I wanted that or this isn't like I like it. But remember that he's assigned us our lot in life for a reason. Sometimes it's to stretch our faith. Instead of complaining, we should be giving thanks and start stretching our faith muscles, getting to work and seeing what God's going to do through us in the situation that we're in. In chapter 20, the cities of refuge are assigned. Now, um, all of the tribes have already gotten their land and the Levites were told, your inheritance is the Lord. You're not going to get a tribal land. But there's going to be these cities called cities of refuge. And uh, Moses actually instructed Joshua before Moses died to assign these cities of refuge for uh for the Levites to inhabit so that anyone, Israelite or foreigner, who accidentally killed a person could flee there and be safe. The example in Deuteronomy is given of a, someone's cutting wood and the axe head flies off and accidentally kills somebody that's standing there helping and that they can flee to that city and find safety because the family of the one who died would be seeking to avenge the death of their loved one, a life for a life. So these cities are appointed in every area of the land uh, that was going to protect the person who took the life if the trial proved him innocent. He had to go through a trial to find out if he's guilty or innocent of intentionally killing the person. If it was shown that he hated the person, then that would be what we call today premeditated murder. And so he would not be able to stay in the city of refuge. Uh, he'd be kicked out of the city. If innocent, he could stay there within that city of refuge until the current high priest died. Until the death of the high priest, of course, foreshadows Jesus, our great high priest, whose death atones for our guilt and makes us innocent. Perhaps uh, the randomness of time uh, you know, it could be this priest would die that year. It could be 50 years. So it could be that the randomness of time uh, was kind of God's sovereign way of, uh, of disciplining or, or judging that person for his carelessness because it could have happened by carelessness. But during that time he's in that city, he'd be separated from his family and his property, but his life would be spared. And, uh, there's a fascinating story about a missionary that went to Indonesia, a little tribe he found way up in the mountains, had a similar practice to what the Israelites did. Instead of a city, it was just a circle of stones. And if someone accidentally killed somebody, they could flee to that circle of stones. And as long as they stayed inside that circle, they would be safe. So the missionaries used that cultural practice of that tribe to explain to the tribe that Jesus is our refuge. 
if we're found in him, the destroyer is not able to take our life. And that was the breakthrough that they needed to, to help the tribe understand the gospel. Jesus is our city of refuge. He declares us innocent because his death paid our sin debt. And the avenger, Satan, cannot execute judgment on us if we stay in Jesus. Now, the cities of refuge were scattered throughout the land of Israel, three on the east side, three on the west side of the Jordan, and they were spaced so far enough apart so that they were close as possible to every tribe and every city in Israel. So they're, they're scattered out in an intentional way so that people could get there easily. In the same way, the word of God tells us that Jesus is near to us wherever we are. Just as the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp during the wandering in the wilderness, as close as possible to each tribe. Now, we haven't committed murder, intentional or unintentional, but we are guilty and we are condemned. For the scripture says that the soul that sins must die. Sin is treason against God, and we are all sinners. He has every right to condemn us. But unlike the cities of refuge, even though we're guilty, in his mercy, he became a place of refuge where we might run and escape the justice we deserve. Jesus is our refuge. Where our refuge that took our punishment upon himself on the cross, which satisfies the justice of God. Run to him and find everlasting life and freedom from condemnation. No wonder the psalmist wrote, the Lord redeems the life of his servants and none of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now Josephus, it doesn't say this in scripture, but Josephus tells about every intersection of a road that led to a, um, a city of refuge had to have a sign that told you which way to turn on the intersection. So it had to be clearly marked this way to the city of refuge so everyone would know where to go. The way to our refuge in Jesus is clearly marked in scripture as well because the word of God tells us in numerous verses, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We can, we can be that signpost for other people. When we see people at an intersection in their life, and you know they're searching for that refuge, we can point to Jesus and say, this is the way to their refuge. Run to him and be safe. There was a magazine long ago uh, called The Christian Age, and it suggested that we too have six cities of refuge. First, our first city of refuge is prayer. Whenever trouble comes to us, we can run to prayer for help as the man of old ran to the city of refuge. The second city is our Bible. Whatever trouble comes to us, we can run to, to, to I'm sorry, when Jesus was tempted three times, the devil in the wilderness to do wrong, every time his heart ran to the Bible as a city of refuge, as he quoted a scripture of promise. The third city, of refuge is a sacred song 
I've heard some of you give testimony lately about how when the enemy was coming in, a song, God stirred up a song of praise in your heart and you were safe. If our hearts and our voices are full of sweet and pure songs about God in heaven and doing good, they will keep away a great many wicked thoughts and evil words. The fourth city of refuge is trust in God as our father. A child was asked the question, what is faith? And she answered, God has spoken and I believe it. That's a, a part of what it means to trust God. Our fifth city of refuge is the Holy Spirit as our guide. The sixth city of refuge, the last one, and the most precious is Jesus as our Savior. Of course, all of them together point to Jesus. Once the Levites had been assigned these cities of refuge, all the land had been allotted. And then we read in Joshua 21, 45, not one word of, God, of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. The 400-year-old promise, along with those given through Moses, were all fulfilled. Everything that Moses assigned to Joshua was done. We too can be sure that none of God's good promises to us will ever fail. God is faithful and cannot lie. He's also able to do above and beyond all that he has promised in his word. And then Joshua 22, 1 to 4 reads, At that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Biblical scholars estimate that Israel was at war for about seven years taking the promised land. The warriors who left their families on the east side of Jordan to help those take that land on the west had fulfilled their promise, and now they're returning to their homes. Can you imagine how, mu how much they must have missed their wives and children? Seven years while they fought. They had gained the spoils of warfare for their service and sacrifice, and they went home wealthy, but they were instructed to share that wealth with those who had stayed behind. And we see that principle with Moses in Numbers 31, 27, and later with David in 1 Samuel 30, verse 24. Those who stayed behind were busy caring for the flocks, for the build, building their homes, planting fields, which the warriors would then come home and enjoy as they returned. And the concept is very much like the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're all a part of one another. Each role is important. And while some appear more important or more glorious, without others that are less glorious roles, they couldn't do what they do. Unlike the world, the people of God are interdependent. 
You know, our culture is so independent. There's some good things about it, but the church of God is interdependent. We all need one another. Instead of seeking one's own good, we are to seek the good of all. We're blessed to share with one another the abundance that God has given to us. You know, before the message today, the elders had gathered to pray, and we were talking about the offering for Pastor Mario. And, I, and, and we said, I know there will be enough. I know it's going to be enough because, because I know your hearts. I know you're generous. I know you care about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 22, verse 5 reads, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. This is uh, Joshua telling those who are going to go back to their homes on the east side of the Jordan and reminding them there's one important thing. And that is to love the Lord their God. It's the one that Jesus said was the most important commandment. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If they do that, then they will walk in his ways. They will keep his commandments. They will cling to him and serve him with all their heart and all their soul. And that's the one command that we too must keep in the forefront of our hearts and minds. Israelite devotion was never a matter of cold conformity to a code of rules any more than Christian discipleship is. It's not external but deeply personal at root. Keeping Yahweh's rules is an expression of our love for Yahweh's purpose, person. To cling to him reminds me of that very intimate image in the Song of Songs where the people ask, who is this coming out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved? It's a picture of the bride of Christ clinging to him so closely to him that they can't even recognize who she is. Cling to him. They did not have the many blessings that we have today, such as the revelation of Jesus, the printed word in their hands, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, or the volumes of worship music that we have today, but they'd seen the mighty hand of God. If they had been 10 years old when they left Egypt, after seeing God show himself more powerful than all the Egyptian gods, then they would have seen the parting of the Red Sea, the provision of manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the law given to Moses on the fiery Mount Sinai, and the way that God defeated their enemies, the death of their fathers for disobedience and murmuring, and now the, that old ancient fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. And they would have been at that time 57 years of age. When they return to their allotted land, they'll have priests living in their midst in those cities of refuge who can remind them of the laws that God gave through Moses. That generation stayed faithful to God as long as Joshua lived 
and the elders that were with Joshua lived after him. With all that God has given us and revealed to us in Jesus, will we cling to him and love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul? Will we walk in all his ways? Will we finish the task that are assigned to us and take all the land that God has for us to take? Well, all seemed to go well to this point, but there was one more test. And it's in 22 from verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, those are the tribes that live on the east side of the Jordan, built there an altar um, at the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. We, today we wonder, what? Why, why would they do that? Well, this is a lesson that is an all too frequent problem of misunderstanding from a lack of clear communication and then making assumptions. Many of the problems within the church should, could be resolved if we didn't jump to conclusions before sitting down and calmly discussing the situation at hand to understand one another's intentions and purposes. Verse 16 says, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel by in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? You see, any other altar other than that at the temple or the tabernacle at that time was forbidden by Moses. The Israelites understood from their past that the sins of one person could affect the whole nation. This is one answer to why the innocent suffer. Adam and Eve's sin caused the entire race to suffer, for we, as their offspring, inherit their sinful nature. The Israelites had seen what happened at Peor. That's a, another story that's mentioned here in their past where they were compromising with the, having physical relationships with the uh, seductive women from Midian and then worshiping their gods. And that was only stopped by a spear through the disobedient couple. But the plague hurt the whole nation. They suffered defeat because of Achan's greed and disobedience. Church, we cannot say because just one lung has cancer, we're still okay. Sin like cancer spreads and it affects the whole congregation. While their assumption was wrong, their reasoning was right. That's often the case in church conflicts. Both sides are well-meaning, and that's why communication is so important. And that is what will solve this problem. Without it, many souls would have needlessly perished, just as many church attendees would be wounded or leave with misunderstandings. That aren't dealt with in a godly way and that's why God gave Jesus gave us Matthew 18 as a path to resolve these differences Jesus gave us that pattern 
so that we could understand one another and deal with sin among us. No one is an island. What each of us does affects all the rest of us. If each of us will be done with sin in our lives and cling to the Lord and walk in the Spirit, the Lord can do great things with the congregation. The blessing of fruitfulness will flow. And I'm not talking about just physical prosperity. I mean opportunities to touch others with the love of Jesus. The Eastern tribes responded in verses 22 and 23, the mighty one, the God, sorry, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. The defense of the Eastern tribes begins with this affirmation of re, repeated for emphasis, Elohim El Yahweh. Elohim, El Yahweh, they're declaring their eternal God of Israel is the only God and he's their God as well. They were saying their hearts are one with the rest of the nation in worshiping God and God alone. They even declare that if the altar was to another God or if they were going to sacrifice to God there, contrary to the laws of Moses, that they would deserve to die. And then they began to explain the intention of the altar. In verse 24 and 25. No, but we did it from fear that in the time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. They explained their concern that in the future generation, those who were on the western side of the Jordan might say to those on the east that they could not access the temple with its altar. They know that would be disastrous for them, so they set up a witness to remind the western tribes that they were one with them, that they worship the same God. In essence, it was exactly the opposite of what the western tribes had assumed. It was not forsaking the God of Israel, but a witness of their dedication to him for the generations to come. Verse 29, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before the tabernacle. Now that the real purpose of the altar was made clear, Israel thought it was a good thing. War was averted, everyone was at peace, the nation was wholeheartedly following the Lord, walking in the fear of the Lord and desiring out of love to worship him alone. But sadly, it only lasted for a generation. Their children will not have the same heart. You can read about that in Judges chapter two. Was it because the stories weren't faithfully passed down? Was it that the nations who remained in the land presented tempting alternatives that appealed to their flesh? Or was it the prosperity they saw in their neighbors that attracted them to idolatry? Maybe it was all of the above. We must ask ourselves 
if we are faithfully passing our faith on to our children and their children? Is the idolatry of the world around us averting our attention and desires from the only one who can truly fill the void in our hearts? One who can tr- is the one who can fill that void is God alone. The hole's too big for anything of this world. We see the decline in our nation and we pray for revival, but it has to begin in each of us. Is there an area of compromise in my life that's affecting the whole body? You know, uh, Luke didn't read this before he gave his call to worship, but how, again, how timely that Luke would have shared that. It goes so well with this message. But dealing with our own sins is where revival begins. We need the fear of the Lord like they had, but also to combine it with faithfully communicating to our children and to their children. Verse 31. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. We can tell the Lord is in our midst when we come together and resolve conflict, discovering that what we're doing is for the zeal of the Lord. Just as the declaration that God is Yahweh brought those tribes into unity, so the declaration Jesus is Lord should bring the church in unity today. Those churches that do not agree with that declaration really are not churches, but rather have become what the Western tribes assumed of the Eastern tribes, worshiping other gods under the guise of Christianity. Other gods are not gods at all. They're pretenders, trying to usurp Jesus' rightful place as Lord over every area of our lives. We should be as eager as they were to see our spiritual and physical families follow after God and take all the land that he has allotted to us. Let us be found faithful to communicate to our children, to our spiritual children as well, the mighty works of God in our lives while living as an example of loving God with our whole hearts. We must do so for the glory of God, for the spiritual future of our children, and for the future of our nation. You know, I, I listen to the news and I think, is there any way God could turn this around? It seems so hopeless. But God's a God of miracles, and he can change hearts. And if we will allow our hearts to be changed, then we can know there's still hope. Because if I always say, if he can change me, he can change anybody. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, help us to have hope that you are the God of the impossible. We lift up our nation to you and ask for your intervention in in the hearts of men and women. But Lord, help us do our part by searching our own hearts first to be sure that we are right in every area with you. 
that we are in unity with your Holy Spirit, holding back nothing. Help us, Lord, as we saw last week, to be like Caleb who wholly followed the Lord. Help us to communicate to our children, to our grandchildren, the amazing things you've done in our lives, the preciousness of Scripture, and a love for the Word of God. And Lord, if, if there's any of us among us that don't think we can do that, show us the way, Lord. Show us how. Give us opportunities to affect our children and our grandchildren's lives. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Joshua. And just as we saw Joshua, whose name is the same as our Savior, bring them into the promised land. Lord, we trust that you are bringing us home to the promised land. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you his peace. Amen.